0: Good morning. We are in a teaching series on First Corinthians, and uh, if you are just joining us today in this series, I encourage you to, after the service, go back online and listen to the previous few uh, messages to get caught up on where we are in that letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. But if you are just joining us today or you need a quick refresher of where we're at, here it is. Corinth was a thriving and progressive Greco-Roman metropolis in the first century. And this was a city where it was all about climbing the socioeconomic and political ladder to get status and recognition. Uh, If you were to modernize the kinds of questions that people would have been concerned with in the city like Corinth, it might sound something like this today. What do I have to do to really be someone? Who do I have to schmooze with in order to get status here? What line of work or study do I need to be in in order to be respected? What are the latest and greatest ideologies and philosophies and influencers that I need to subscribe to that will make me appear wise, smart, culturally relevant, or in today's words, woke? But it's not just about who we follow. And what ideologies we ascribe to? No, no, no. Equally important is to know which ideas teachers and influencers were against, right? Who and what does our culture encourage us to hate, slander, and cancel? Hmm. Are we still talking about Corinth here? That's beginning to sound a lot like our culture, right? But welcome to the early church of Corinth, friends. On top of being in this kind of a cultural milieu, the church had some really serious issues going on, listed on this slide. And as you look at this list, you might think, is this in the Bible, or am I watching some kind of TV drama that's bad for my soul? But this is the reality of the early church in Corinth. Now, Paul does get to addressing the mess that the church had gotten itself into, but Remember, Paul doesn't just come in with guns a-blazing, scolding them, you're doing this wrong, and you're terrible here. And Rather, he's, his starting point is actually to give thanks to God for all the ways in which God has already blessed them. Then, as Jeff mentioned in week one, he reminds them of their new identity in Christ, and that because of this new identity, these old ways of being in the world just doesn't suit them anymore. Last week, uh, Jeff taught on chapter three where Paul tells the Corinthian church that they are not yet spiritually mature Christians. They're spiritual infants because they're still acting and living just like the culture around them. And there had been division in the church that had created these different cliques. And each faction was boasting about their human leader that they had put on a pedestal. And at the same time, they were slamming all the other church leaders as being far superior, uh, inferior. And Paul tells them, stop putting human leaders on pedestals. We are servants of Jesus. We're equals in the kingdom of God um, and in Christ. And then he says, moreover, this other guy that you're comparing me to, Apollos, Apollos and me are teammates. We're working for the same goal. So why are you pitting us against each other? It doesn't even make sense. Uh, It kind of reminded me of when I was a kid. Uh, And during recess, my classmates and I would pretend to be different Power Rangers, right? And we'd argue about which Power Ranger was better and why the other ones just suck, right? But why were we dividing over that? It doesn't even make sense. The Power Rangers, yes, they have different strengths and weaknesses, but they're working as a team for one goal. And the Corinthians are acting just as childish. So in Chapter 4, the chapter we're going to start today... Paul continues addressing how then they ought to view people who are in spiritual leadership. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Corinthians 4. And we're going to be hanging out in the first seven verses today. It'll also be up on the screen. Here's what it says. This then is how you ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? We're going to end at verse 7 for today. And I just want to talk about kind of three main things um, that stood out to me studying this passage this week. The first one is simply how we ought to view church leaders. In verses 1 and 2, Paul tells them, don't view us as power rangers, right? But as servants of Christ. And commentator uh, William Barclay, he points out that what's really interesting here is that the Greek word Paul uses for servant is not the usual word he uses for servant. Usually, when you translate the Greek, you'll find this word for servant, and it says diakonos, which we get the word deacon from. But Paul actually uses a totally different word here to describe the word servant, and it's a little tricky to translate because it had a culturally time-bound meaning. It meant something very specific in that time and culture. He uses the word huperetes, and it had a very specific meaning. It meant one of those slaves or servants who would pull on the large oars of an ancient warship. Anyone maybe remember this next picture, next slide? Anyone remember that picture of this old movie, Ben-Hur? Yeah? Don't worry, youth. It was an old movie when I was your age. But that's the picture that we're supposed to get. And remember, Corinth is a seaport. So Paul is using a metaphor that would have instantly clicked with them. They're like, oh, I I know what he's talking about. And we're supposed to get this idea of Christ as the captain or the pilot of the ship. And Paul and other church leaders as the slaves who only do what their captain commands. That's the role of church leaders, he says. It is not to be the CEO celebrity of a uh, pastor of a church, and neither is it to be um, an errand boy or an errand girl who is there just to please every demand that the church has. It is to be a servant who does what the captain commands, and that captain is Jesus alone. Then Paul immediately uses another metaphor to describe him and other preachers and church leaders he says we are those who are entrusted or some of your translations might say stewards of the mysteries of god or that of the mysteries god has revealed that does not mean that pastors or church leaders have some kind of secret knowledge when he talks about the mysteries that god has revealed what he's saying is um, there were mysteries about the gospel that had not previously been revealed That are now being revealed and our job is to teach and preach on the gospel but again he uses a different metaphor here he says the word steward also had a particular meaning in that culture it referred to a servant who had been entrusted with overseeing and managing part of his or her master's estate still a servant sometimes still a slave but entrusted with great responsibility Um, The picture that came to mind as I thought about this was uh, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 39. It's the role that Joseph has in Potiphar's household, right? He was still a slave who was sold into slavery into Egypt. Uh, Potiphar buys him. But because he has proven to be faithful, Potiphar puts him in a great position of responsibility. And he entrusts his whole estate to him. And that's the kind of picture that we are to get of church leaders who are stewards um, of the church, of God. And in verse 2, he reminds us that it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. The role of church leaders is not to be successful by worldly standards, it is to be faithful. As one Vancouver pastor puts it, he says, The identity is servant. The assignment is faithfulness. And while he's specifically addressing church leaders here, that applies to all Christians, right? We're servants of Christ. We are called to be faithful. So secure in his identity and in his calling, Paul can then say in verses three and four, he says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. Now, these verses can and have been misapplied and abused in kind of saying you should never heed any correction from other Christians. And many church leaders have sadly abused these verses, thinking that they are somehow above accountability. And that is not what this text is about. Context is always key, especially in letters where we're listening into half of a phone conversation, essentially. Context is key. Commentators say that Paul had been slandered and judged by these Corinthians who were saying things like, oh, Paul is so yesterday's news. These other leaders, they're far better Christians. I want to follow them. They have more wisdom. They're more in touch with Greek philosophy. They're better educated. They're way more eloquent speakers. Paul is just some lowly tent maker, and while his letters are forceful, when he shows up in person, he's not that impressive. This is the kind of thing they were saying about Paul, and to that kind of attitude, Paul says, you know what, I actually don't really care what you think about me. In fact, I don't even consume myself all that much with judging myself because I'm secure in my identity and in my calling to serve Jesus. And in verse 4, he says, my conscience is clear, But that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. I want you to notice Paul's confidence here, not in himself, but his confidence in Jesus and his security in knowing his identity and his calling. But also his humility. He says, my conscience is clear, meaning to say, I don't think I've wronged anyone in this community, but I could be wrong." He recognizes that although our conscience can be a good moral compass, sometimes our conscience can be wrong because it is also affected by the fall. Uh, My New Testament professor, Ed Neufeldt, he was teaching on this very book, and I I dug up a a note that he had um, talked about this very verse, and he said, Our conscience is sometimes overemphasized. It is important but it actually needs to be educated by the word of God. It needs to be trained. Verse five, therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. I was kind of wrestling with this text, and I started to ask, should we judge others or should we not? Um, Here, Paul says, I don't think much of your judgment. And then he encourages them not to judge anything before their appointed time. But in the very next chapter, chapter 5, Paul straight up judges someone in the church and tells them, I have passed judgment on this person. And then he calls them. He says, your job as the church is not to judge the people outside of the church, not to judge the people who don't know Jesus, but it actually is your job. To judge the people in the church. And I sat there scratching my head like, which is it, Paul? Should we judge or not judge? And as I did a bit more digging, I think it all depends on what the spirit and intention of our judgment is. Um, In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, uh, don't judge, for if you judge, you'll be judged with the same standard. Something along those lines. That's the Rick translation. But then he goes on to point out someone else's Uh, he says, don't point out someone else's sin while being totally ignorant of your own sin. First deal with your own sin, then you're in a place where you can help others deal with theirs. And so Jesus is saying, don't be a hypocritical judge. And in Paul's case, people are trying to play God and determine who's a better Christian here. And they're basing it off of very superficial and worldly standards. And Paul is saying, that kind of judgment is worthless. Only God can judge what's in a person's heart and the sincerity of our discipleship. Don't pass that kind of judgment on to people. However, the kind of judgment he does say in the next chapter is our responsibility to to carry out is the kind that holds leaders and other Christians accountable. The kind of judgment that calls people who say, I am a follower of Jesus. Hey, let's live like followers of Jesus then. So not all judgment is bad. It's the spirit and the intent behind it. Judgment has a negative connotation in our culture, but biblically speaking, it's something to be celebrated because it means putting things right, putting injustices to right. And in this instance, Paul just brushes off their judgment of him because there's a really toxic spirit and intent behind it. And in fact, It's this toxic spirit that is leading to much of the visible problems in their church that slide with all those issues. There's something behind it that's animating all of that. It's a sin that is not easily detectable, but it is nevertheless a disease that is impacting the whole health of the Corinthian church. It's blocking them from their own calling to be faithful and fruitful as followers of Jesus. Let's see what that is. And how they can combat it. I'm going to read verses 6 to 7 again. And he doesn't straight out say it. But I'll pose the question to you. Let me see if you can uh, figure out what is this subtle sin that he's hinting at here. He says, now brothers and sisters, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit. So that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up. In being a follower of one of us or against the other? For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? What sin do you think Paul is addressing here? Yeah. Spot on. Pride. Pride is one of those sins that seems, let's be honest, most palatable for people to accept, right? Because it's just not as as shameful as other sins. And it can be largely hidden. But it is often listed as the first of the seven deadly sins. Of course, all sin is bad, but the reason that Christians have kind of identified seven deadly sins, sometimes called capital sins, is because they have the power to lead to many other sins. They're like a wellspring at the beginning of a river, and it gives birth to a whole host of new sins. And pride is one that is leading the Corinthian church to many of these other sins. Um, It reminded me of our our cherry tree that we have in our front yard. I uh, I planted it a couple of summers ago. It's doing a little better this year, and it is alive. It is growing. It's producing some fruit. But what I began noticing last year was that the leaves and even the cherries uh, were getting brown. This is not a picture of my tree but it, it gives you an idea of what it looked like. It's as if they were rotting from the inside out and initially I thought well maybe it needs more water or maybe I need to address the leaves or maybe the cherries directly but through some research I found that these visible problems on the outside of the tree were actually a manifestation of something bigger unseen problem beneath the surface literally you see the native soil that my tree is planted in uh, doesn't drain very well it's like clay under my front lawn and so when the root is constantly wet because it doesn't drain very well at some point a fungal infection started growing at the root causing all these other visible problems on my tree And I think Paul is noticing something similar in the Corinthian church plant. Yes, there's some growth happening. He gives them praise for that. But there's also very obvious problems. And I think Paul knows that they might stem from a less obvious issue under the surface. At the root, the Corinthian church is still planted in its native soil of a Greco-Roman pagan culture. The self-seeking values and the ways of life of the culture are still heavily influencing their church and it's making their conditions perfect for pride to creep in and affect the health of their whole church see if i want to save my cherry tree i need to do the hard work of digging out all the clay around it treating the root and then replacing it with new fertile soil that will drain good that will drain well i can't just leave it in its native clay like soil and the corinthian church like Uh, Jeff mentioned in earlier messages, is sanctified. It is called to be in fellowship with Jesus. It was called to be rooted in God's kingdom way of life, adopting a whole new set of priorities and values. But they were still trying to keep their roots in the native soil of the Greco-Roman pagan culture and had failed to realize that pride was infecting the health of their discipleship and the life of their church. And it was leading to all kinds of other visible problems, which we're going to get into more in chapter 5 and onwards. According to um, a pastor by the name of James Schaefer, he defined pride this way. He said, Pride is an excessive love of self or the desire to be better or more important than others. Isn't that exactly what's happening in these different factions in the Corinthian church? We're better. Oh, they're they're terrible. We're better. We've got it. There's a neat website that I came across this week called uh, DeadlySins.com where you can get a short synopsis on better understanding. I promise, it's a real website. It's legit. I know. I chuckled at it too, but it's good. It actually gives uh, you a better understanding of these seven deadly sins theologically. So it's got a little snapshot of what makes them deadly, and how they play out. Um, Yeah, it's great. And on this website, they define pride this way. It says, pride is excessive belief in one's own abilities, and here's the big problem, that interferes with the individual's recognition of the grace of God. It's been called the sin from which all others arise. Just like this fungal problem on my cherry tree, it's the problem from which all my other tree problems arose, so too functions pride. So what's Paul's antidote to this infection of pride? Remembering God's grace. If pride has the ability to keep us from recognizing God's grace, we need to remember, and that's what he's doing in verse seven. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why are you boasting as though you didn't? It said that St. Augustine saw the whole doctrine of grace. St. Augustine, early theologian, early Christian. He saw the whole doctrine of grace in this one phrase. What do you have that you did not receive? Commentator William Barclay, he says this, no one could ever have known God unless he would reveal himself. Men and women could never have won their own salvation. They do not save themselves. They are saved. Then he says, when we think of what we have done and then think of what God has done for us, pride is ruled out and only humble gratitude remains. The basic fault of the Corinthians was that they had forgotten that they owed their souls to God. Jeff actually said a very similar thing last week in chapter 3. He said, If you struggle with the sin of pride and condescension against other Christians, it's because you have forgotten who you were when God called you. So, the antidote of the disease of pride is actually remembering God's grace for us. And when we do, we are driven to humility and gratitude. And humility is the counter virtue of pride but we can't just be humble. We actually need to be impacted by the grace of God in order for humility to grow in us. So the question is, how do you know whether whether or not you struggle with pride? You see, the tricky thing about pride is that it's very hard to spot in ourselves. Most people who struggle with pride don't actually think they do. I didn't think I struggled with it, But as I've been reflecting on my life, as I read an article this week in preparation for this message, I was convicted that, wow, this this is a sin that has crept into my life. Almost unconsciously so. And I want to read for you, um, this will be our closing bit, our application, if you will. I want to read for you a short article by a Christian counselor and a writer. Her name is Fabienne Harper. And I want to read this for you as our application because it actually serves as a really good self-diagnosis tool on identifying the symptoms of pride in our life. And if you would like the whole article, come talk to me. I'll send you a link to, uh, to that on an email. Uh, or I can also post it on our Facebook group. But she said that pride infects our eyesight causing us to view ourselves through a lens that colors and distorts reality. Pride will paint even our ugliness in sin as beautiful and commendable. So she says the first symptom, and she's drawing on Jonathan Edwards, actually. So she's drawing on a lot of what Jonathan Edwards had written about pride. The first symptom she mentions is fault finding. While pride causes us to filter out the evil we see in ourselves, It also causes us to filter out God's goodness in others. We sift them, letting only their faults fall into our perception of who they are. The second symptom is a harsh spirit. Those who have the sickness of pride in their hearts speak of others' sins with contempt, irritation, frustration, and judgment. Pride is crouching inside our belittling of the struggles of others. It could come across as a sarcastic comment, as a joking comment. Third is superficiality. When pride lives in our hearts, we're far more concerned with others' perceptions of us than the reality of our hearts. And so she says, so we fight the sins that have an impact on how others view us, but we make peace with the ones that no one really sees. The next one is defensiveness. And she says, true humility is not knocked off balance and thrown into a defensive posture by challenge or rebuke. So when a trusted friend, a fellow Christian who loves you, who cares for you, who knows you, comes and says, hey, I see something happen in your life that I want to address with you. Are you defensive or are you open to that kind of correction? The next one is presumption before God. And this is a two-part thing. She says, humility approaches God with humble assurance, those two words, in Christ Jesus. If either the humble or the assurance are missing in that equation, our hearts very well might be infected with pride. So if the, if the humble part is missing, she says, some of us have no shortage of boldness before God, but if we're not careful, we forget that he is still God. The other part, if the assurance part is missing, She said, it can be the opposite, and it can actually feel like humility, but it's not. She says, others of us feel no confidence before God, which sounds like humility, but in reality, it's another symptom of pride, because in those moments, we're testifying that we believe our sins are greater than God's grace. We doubt the power of Christ's blood, and we're stuck staring at ourselves instead of the captain of the ship. The next one is desperation for attention. Pride is hungry for attention, for respect, and worship in all its forms. She says, maybe it sounds like shameless boasting about ourselves, but maybe it's being unable to say no to anyone because we need to be needed. Or maybe it looks like obsessively thirsting for marriage or fantasizing about a better marriage, not because you truly love your spouse and want to sacrificially give to them, but because you're hungry to be adored. Or maybe it looks like being haunted by your desire for the right car or the right house or the right job title, all because you seek the glory that comes from humans and not God. And the last one she mentions is neglecting others. Pride prefers some people over others. It honors those who the world deems worthy of honor. But we consciously or unconsciously pass over the weak, the inconvenient, the unattractive, because... They don't really offer us much. And so the end of the article just says, maybe more of us struggle with pride than we thought. But here's the good news. She concludes, there's good news for the prideful. Confession of pride signals the beginning of the end of pride. It indicates the war is already being waged, for only when the Spirit of God is moving, already humbling us, can we remove the lenses of pride pride from our eyes and see ourselves clearly, identifying the sickness and seeking the cure. By God's grace, we can turn again to the glorious gospel in which we stand and make much of him, even through identifying our pride and all its hiding places inside of us. She says, just as my pride, or just as my concealed pride once moved me toward death, so the acknowledgement of my pride now moves me toward life by causing me to cling more fiercely to the righteousness of Christ. Amen. I'm going to invite Carson up. That's where we're going to land the plane today. I'm going to invite Carson up to lead us in a response song. And as we do, I invite you to pray the words of Psalm 139 uh, quietly in your hearts with me this morning, verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Amen.